Welcome to the Repentance Podcast. I'm Maxwell Hill. I'm Riley Jeffs, and we are your co-hosts. As disciples of Christ and sinners who have struggled to overcome the addictive behaviors of pornography and masturbation, repentance is confusing for us. In this podcast, we explore topics and questions in an effort to bring clarity to the repentance process so we can all be more effectively changed by the power of the Godhead. We touch on sensitive topics with the intent of keeping them sacred and not sensational. Welcome everyone to the Repentance Podcast. Today we've invited Dr. John Schmidt, a pediatrician at Alta View, Alta View <laughs> Pediatrics, and we are so excited to have him. He's here to specifically talk about how to address some of the biological factors that might influence sinful or addictive behavior. And we just wanted to ask, like, John, do you want to give us a brief introduction? Or I'm a pediatrician, Sandy, and I've been there uh, about six years now. I grew up in Sandy. I love Salt Lake. I love Utah. I've got five kids. My baby is five, and my oldest is in high school, ninth grade. And three girls, two boys. So I get a lot of practice at home. Awesome. And and before we jump into our interview with you, um, we just wanted to give some context for anybody who's listening to this episode who hasn't heard our previous episode with Kevin Terrio. He also said you were his el- his elders quorum president. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> Since that time, two big things have happened. He moved and I got released. <laughs> That is where our relationship began. I love that. Yeah, so in our interview with Kevin, the whole focus of the interview was what is the role of a professional in the repentance process? In our interview, Kevin referenced a talk by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland called Like a Broken Vessel, um, where Elder Holland says, if you had an appendicitis, God would expect you to seek a priesthood blessing and get the best medical care available. So too with emotional disorders. Our Father in Heaven expects us to use all of the marvelous gifts He has provided in this glorious dispensation. In Riley and my experience going through repentance, I think sometimes there's a hesitation to even talk to a bishop, but I think even more so there's a hesitation to talk with professionals because at least for us, we always thought in our repentance process that anything related to sin is a spiritual problem. And so we love this quote from Elder Holland because it helps us recognize that there is a place for professionals in the repentance process that apostles aren't saying, you know, like if, if you're not able to make the change that you're hoping for with a bishop, it's because you're sinful or not faithful enough that sometimes these issues are a little bit more complicated than just addressing the the spiritual things. So we asked Kevin, we said, you know, how would somebody know if they should be working with a professional? And his response was the saying that all of us have heard many times, which is um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. He said, that's how you know when you might need some professional intervention along with um, the help that you're getting from a bishop. Well, and I'll jump in right there. A lot of, you know, especially in pediatrics, so uh, 
thinking about the teenager, junior high, high school years, a lot of people don't know they need help. So the example that I see daily in my office is you know, we have these screeners. So you come in for a cough or a broken arm or for your yearly visit, we're going to ask you some questions about your mental health. Mm-hmm. And that's one way that we can try to tease in that. Uh, a lot of younger adolescents don't want to talk to anyone about anything. But if they'll fill out this questionnaire and can give us an idea on how many good days and bad days on a bunch of different questions, that can help alert people. And I probably have at least one interaction a week of a parent that says, hey, this paper, I had no idea what was going on here. And sometimes those are suicidal thoughts. Sometimes those are a lot of depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms. So I think one of the first thing to think about when you think of your family members, your neighbors, your friends, people in your ward is, are they struggling? I'm not talking about whether it's because of sin or mental health or other diseases. I'm just in general, are you struggling? Mm-hmm. And with COVID and other stressors, there's a lot of reasons why these numbers of people struggling are going up. And so we can all help others by helping to identify who are these people that maybe aren't seeking help yet. Maybe they're not to that point. But if we're looking for it, they're all over the place. Mm, yeah. So you're primary care physician can be one of those avenues to start that conversation. Yeah. I loved, I loved when Kevin mentioned that he, cause he talked about how there's so many factors that influence like people struggling yeah. or, or sinful behavior, or addictive behavior. And he talked about, he mentioned like specifically the biopsychosocial sphere. So by bio, biological factors, psychological factors, sociocultural factors, and spiritual factors. And those were, that was really insightful to hear that from him. Cause like Max and I had never really considered biological factors as a part of our repentance. It, what what would you think would qualify as biological? Like how would you define a biological factor that influences sin or addictive behavior? So I want to be really careful here. Yeah. <laughs> you can go down a very slippery slope and you can justify or uh, label any sin as a physiologic problem. Mm-hmm. You know, repentance is part of a perfecting, a, a getting better, um, improving self-improvement. And so as we talk about biological factors, you've got to be careful that you're not just trying to explain away the reason why you don't need a bishop, you just need a doctor. <laughs> and there's no rule for a bishop. Yeah. So these are complicated things. But um, I think first of all, when you think of biological, you think of uh, a diagnosis. I, a lot of people are leery of getting a diagnosis or a label, mm-hmm. right? There's a mm-hmm. stigma of, I don't want to be labeled. I like to think of a diagnosis as a guide to therapy. You, you can't treat someone very well without having a diagnosis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It points everyone that's on that team to treat you in a direction. So a problem is having the wrong diagnosis, right? Because then the whole team's pointing down the wrong road. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But just as problematic as not having a diagnosis and just throwing darts at a wall. You know, whether your problem is biological or uh, spiritual or mental, physical, whatever, you, you wanna make sure uh, many times that you're involving a healthcare professional of some sort to help you if there is a diagnosis that needs to be made. Mm. Now, there's not a official diagnosis of sinful behavior, right? Yeah. (laughs) But as we've talked, there are a lot of overlaps. 
So, uh, you know, a classic one in medicine is depression. Depression uh, is a diagnosis. It's not a cause. Mm. So then the question is, well, what's the cause of your depression? You know, uh, a lot of that is under the umbrella of mental health. But someone whose thyroid is really low can look very depressed. Talking to a doctor about your depression hopefully opens up a conversation about are there other things we should be looking at? Weight gain or being cold all the time or other symptoms that can trigger uh, the idea of, hey, maybe we should check some labs. Maybe we should check your thyroid. There's a lot of diagnoses like that that have multiple triggers that you want to rule out what might be uh, something you can treat. Um, a therapist is an excellent way to treat depression. It's not super helpful to fix your thyroid. Yeah. So yeah. you mm. want to know what diagnosis you have to guide your therapy. The other thing when you think about the biology of emotions, mental health, sin, uh, physical health even, is that God knows your biology. And he knows it better than you do. He knows it because he created it. <laughs> so, again, going down the road, the academic road of I'm just going to read all the textbooks and figure myself <laughs> out is a very long, dark road <laughs> if you're not involving God who knows all those books. Yeah. And, and so I always I would recommend to listeners, to everyone, to include God in the understanding of their biology. Mm. It, it's not a black and white, my bishops, my spiritual, my doctors, my medical. You want to bring those together by understanding what God knows about you. Yeah, it's so awesome you bring this up because that was one of the points we wanted to make as a follow-up to our interview with Kevin because, you know, when he explained that there's all these these four factors I guess one of the pitfalls somebody could fall into is, is kind of treating each of those areas like buckets where, you know, you're going to dip into the biological bucket and then dip into the spiritual. But Riley and I, we wanted to make the point that it's kind of like the spiritual is like an umbrella, like you're saying that you should be using in your exploration through all of those, those factors. So whether you're working with a psychologist or a doctor like the spiritual should always be a part of that exploration. God has the ability to give us revelation and lead us through these things and give us shortcuts, like you said, to knowing or defining the answers that we need without having to know all that there is to know about everything related to your biology. Other interesting topics. We talk about the biology of our bodies. So there's this little almond-shaped cluster of neurons in your brain, deep in the brain, called the amygdala. Through imaging studies and things, neuroscientists of which I'm not, um, <laughs> but they, they talk about this as a part of the brain that has a the primary role in processing memories, decision-making, and emotional responses. You know, fear, anxiety, aggression. So yeah, you can pinpoint to a part of your brain that lights up when those kinds of things are involved. And so when you talk about uh, imbalances or irregularities physiologically, you can point to things like the anatomy of your amygdala to say maybe that's involved with uh, some of the actions or uh, good or bad sin that I'm involved with. Mm. But again, that doesn't, that's not an out 
for not calling it sin, right? That's just my amygdala here taking over. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's hormones as well. So things like serotonin or dopamine are, are these neurotransmitters that send signals that do things to our body. Medicine does not have a good answer for where's the spirit in this anatomy and these neurotransmitters. There's yeah. obviously some overlap in, in control in that. Yeah, That's what totally. Our gospel teaches us. Totally. You know, serotonin's a neurotransmitter that helps to regulate your mood. Too much serotonin gives you diarrhea, headaches, confusion, sweating. But too little is also not good. You see that in, in depression, anxiety, OCD. There's a uh -huh. real important balance, hormone balance with serotonin along with other chemicals. Dopamine's another interesting one. Um, it plays mm. a role in pleasure and thinking and planning. Yeah. And so it, it helps us strive and focus and, and find interest in things. Again, too much or too little is a big problem. There's a lot of wisdom in the uh, idea of moderation in all things. That includes moderation in your hormone and neurotransmitters, your brain. And so our brains are a very complex machine that helps regulate all these balances that we need. And so as you think about the biological piece, uh, there's fascinating anatomy and biology at play. An interesting thing with these... Uh, hormones so like serotonin a lot of uh, our mood stabilizer medications work on serotonin mm -hmm. either help once it's secreted take it up to secrete it again so we call them reuptake inhibitors there's other ones that are um, that can help increase those levels and with people with depression anxiety it's a very helpful medication for a mm -hmm. lot of them um, but again finding that balance and that's where it gets tricky in an individual is finding what's going to help you balance that. Yeah. And by balance, I don't mean your hormones. I mean everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your emotions, your the regulation of your emotions, um, the, the triggers that uh, may come through multiple things in your life, your environment, can all yeah. be helped by finding those balances. You know, things like uh, exercise and diet, right? That changes a lot of those balances, our body responds to those things. You talk about genetics versus epigenetics. Another fascinating uh, piece of the biology, right? So you have your <laughs> genes, that's your DNA. Yeah. yeah. You inherited that. Whether you like your parents or not, that's where it came <laughs> from. Um, but epigenetics is the study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. So epigenetic changes are reversible they're changing uh, they don't change the dna the basic dna of your body but they change how your body reads that dna so oh, it's an on off switch am i going to read that gene today well what does that gene <laughs> do well that makes serotonin or that makes this hormone or or, or some other uh, biological function hmm. so depending on your environment Again, diet and exercise, right? It triggers your body to change the physiology because yeah. you're making actual different proteins. You're not storing fat. You're burning fat and building muscle. It changes how your same DNA gets used. And that is the same with your mental health. And so your environment, stressful environments, um, toxic environments, uh, stress, uh, can all have a, a role in changing what's actually uh, produced by your DNA, the epigenetics mm. of it. That is so fascinating. <laughs> kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm understanding, like biological essentially encompasses like any of the physical responses that could be like measured in the body, whether that's... That's a piece, yeah. But 
you know, again, things like serotonin very much affect the, the mental piece. You know, how are you responding? Uh, your mood is, you know, I think most of us think of that as not very physical. Mm, yeah. Um, but it, uh, it affects us physically. You know, if you're in a bad mood or, or depressed, you may not get out of bed. And that mm. affects your physical body uh, a lot. Mm. So it, it's complicated in that these all overlap. You can't just pinpoint that it's your serotonin that's imbalanced or that your amygdala is overacting or one thing you know it's Mm. nice when you walk in it's just your thyroid and you just take some medicine and you fix everything in your life the reality is that's usually not everything yeah (laughs) usually that's a piece of the puzzle Mm -hmm. um uh, i'll give you a very common pediatric example uh is chronic abdominal pain so my tummy's hurt for six months that's not a bad food you ate no <laughs> there's something more going time, on yeah. there um a lot of times i end up saying we need to get you pooping normal first hmm. so that then we can talk about what other things that are stressors or other things are adding to it constipation might be your diagnosis but it's a piece of a larger puzzle it like usually this, has to do with the whole picture it's like a first step it gives us somewhere to start mm-hmm. and it sometimes all you need is to see a little light oh I feel a little better after getting cleaned out. Mm. Um, you know, it could be the same as, you know, having a, a mental health day <laughs> where you, you say, you know what, I need a break from whatever I'm doing, work or school, and uh, go for a hike. And sometimes that just gives you, clears your mind and gives you a little hope. Okay, I can move through this. It didn't fix anything. It was a small piece of this, but it got me on the right track. So there's not really a way you can, like, isolate. I would be so careful a lot trying of, to isolate, yeah. Is it all overlap, yeah. How do you go about that process? Is it just a lot of trial and error or is there kind of like a methodology? I'll start with saying I don't think it matters why you show up in my office. Whether your therapist sends you, whether you're failing so your parents drag you in by your ears and tell you <laughs> that something's got to give. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's because they have a relationship with their doctor and so that's where they start. Others may end up in their bishop's office. There's a lot of places you may start. My mm. approach by the time you, you come to the doctor's office is pretty uniform for all those. The first step is listening. You can spend millions of dollars working up all the possibilities. The hope, in primary care at least, is can we target this a little better? So we call it a differential diagnosis. There's a wide variety of different diagnoses that could explain what you're describing to me. As we work through there, what's more likely, what's more common? Based on what you're saying, what your history is, I'm trying to decide, does it make sense to do labs? Does it make sense to take some pictures, do some imaging? Does it make sense to send you back home to write things down in journal for a little while so we have more information? Mm. Do I send you straight to a specialist? Or do I pretty quickly start steering you back to your therapist? I think you are in the right place. And Mm. so that can be very varied, uh, very different depending on what that story is. Often I'll have teenagers or young adults that don't want to talk a lot. So then you're getting the story secondhand through a parent. That parent may, uh, with all the love they have for their child, have a very... Yeah, they're just poignant view of their opinion, I guess, of of how they see it. Right. He's smoking pot, and that's his problem, Doc. Make him (laughs) stop, right? Yeah. Why is he smoking pot? Is he self medicating uh, a mental illness? Mm. Is he, uh, you know, suffers some trauma or abuse somewhere and he's trying to just leave his reality? There's a lot of reasons underneath that. So 
it, it kind of makes it, it tricky in pediatrics sometimes to dig down to hmm. parent story versus the child story. Other times the child's too young to tell you anything. And so hmm. then you're more of a veterinarian listening to something that's not talking to you. But yeah. Either way, that's the art of medicine, not the science of medicine. How do we listen to find out where do we start? Often it does start with labs. Um, you know, looking at things like electrolytes and kidney function and liver function can be a, an easy way to rule out some of the more serious things. A liver that's not functioning well can do a lot of weird things to your brain. Your, your liver synthesizes uh, and breaks down proteins and, and makes all these important molecules that your body uses to make other things. And when it's not functioning right, all sorts of stuff can go wrong. Hmm. It includes cognitive things. So you, you can it's an easy way to kind of screen for stuff. Now, we don't always do labs just to do labs, um, especially the younger you get. But that's one way to start. Other times, looking at your, your blood cells. You know, is your immune system uh, intact? Uh, do you have the right balance of clotting cells and immune cells and all those things? And hmm. uh, checking that can be a helpful way to rule things out especially uh, when infection's involved. You know, mm. Think mono, right? Mono, I'm lying in bed for three months. Yeah. Are you depressed yeah. or do you have mono? Uh, checking titers or, or a monospot test can be a good way to rule that out if that's what the story sounds like. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I, I feel like what you're saying is it doesn't really matter if somebody goes to a therapist first or goes to a doctor first or goes to a bishop first, like... It well, sounds you probably like go where you feel more comfortable first, yeah, honestly. Yeah. So if your next-door neighbor's a therapist and been a good friend of your family's for years, you might end up there first. Hmm. Other people have never even realized what a therapist is. Yeah. So I have patients every week that I'm explaining what a therapist is and what the role is for a therapist and talking about how I want them to use a therapist. And then they're going to try to find with their insurance company a therapist. <laughs> and there's a wait list and access problems, but you know, it's guiding them in that direction. Hmm. Other times they may start with a bishop. You know, bishops have a great resource of using the, the church's resources um, to try to steer people with uh, family services, and that can be really helpful as well. So hmm. it, it's not that it doesn't matter. It's that we all have our own life experience that steer us from a different direction. Yeah. The hope is that you end up in one of those places. Yeah, <laughs> Somewhere sure. where someone can help. Sometimes that's just a friend that's had some similar experiences. Say, I started here. It worked pretty good for me. So it's not that it doesn't matter matter is that that's our varied lives so say somebody's listening to this podcast who's going through the repentance process or maybe it's like a bishop who's working with somebody who's struggling with an addictive behavior how would they know if a medical doctor should be involved versus a therapist or like do you feel like there's clear signs of maybe when biology should be addressed or it goes back to listening. You'd hope that something in the story triggers the thought of, this sounds like more medical. Now, if you don't know that the medical exists, you don't ever think of it. But if, uh, you know, as a, a therapist, as a bishop, as a doctor, you know about your resources, you know, uh, culturally, all right, here I've got a, uh, a kid who's, let's say, depressed, um, but he talks about pornography addiction or something else you go hey is that something that you've talked to anybody about and you know a therapist or a, a bishop may be a good place to start but that's not always uh, the first thing that's brought up but I think if you're listening um, to someone who has lots of different symptoms then it makes sense to rule that out on the biological side 
Mm. You know, if it's leading to things like problems with sleep, that's a pretty generic symptom. Yeah. Mm. But there's a lot of biology involved in sleep too. So, you know, if you're hearing a story about I'm, I'm sleeping in, I, I can't fall asleep, but then I sleep in till noon. So then I miss school and I'm failing school or I don't go to work or you know, I haven't been to church in months because I sleep through it. Um, that's a sleep problem. Is that a doctor problem? I mean, those kind of conversations start triggering. Let's look into that. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's a magic sleeping pill that's going to fix you, <laughs> but it means you're having those conversations of are there other things going on? Hmm. They may be lifestyle. They may be life choices. They may be addictions. They may be uh, just, you know, we call it sleep hygiene. What are you doing to prepare for sleep, to go to hmm. bed? And if we're ignoring those things, everything else in your life's a little harder than it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. Like, if I stay up till two one night, I'm wrecked for like three days. I keep tr- I keep testing it. <laughs> Nothing changes. Yeah. As we were thinking about biological issues, and especially with when it comes to like mental health stuff, and like um, getting medicine for anxiety or depression and things, we sometimes wonder because I I, re- I was reading The Body Keeps a Score, a book about trauma. And he mentions that sometimes medications can be given in a way that treat the symptoms, but cover up underlying issues. And that's, that's something that I've thought about and been curious if that is a problem. And if that's something people in the repentance process should be aware of as they're going forward. Absolutely. I think that's the whole premise for self-medicating a lot of drug abuse and use is that desire to cover up emotion or feeling mm. um, not 100 percent, but but a lot of that has to do with i'm in a, a different place and um it's self-medicating it's the same reason you'd, you'd medicate with your doctors i want to make a change mm-hmm. so you know we really a lot of people are leery to go on medication um what you got to be careful of is does that just steer you in a self-medicating route yeah you see that a lot of times you know i'm not going to treat my kids adhd and then they end up on, on street drugs or other things that kind of cover some of the not fitting in stuff. Uh, again, everyone is different. It's yeah. the important piece here. I always tell my patients, everyone has different approaches to this, but um, unless I'm meeting with someone who's actively suicidal and there's lots going on, usually I say, let's do a stepwise approach. You know, the most effective place to start is with a therapist. Mm-hmm. Let's help you build some coping skills. Let's help you identify your triggers and work with a therapist first. And then I want to see you back. And, you know, this is the primary care doctor talking. I want to see you back in two, three months and see how you're doing. Because if you're not doing any better, or if you hit a wall with that therapist, there may be a role for medication. Uh, it's a lot harder if you start with the medication and it puts a Band-Aid on a problem that gets you through that doesn't leave any mm. in- incentive to go learn those long-term coping skills. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to ignore that. So if you look at studies of uh, kids who are really struggling with this stuff, uh, the ones that do both do really well. Um, But if we just are looking for that magic pill, again, you're missing the big picture here of there's a a process and skills that need to be learned. I also try to talk to patients who didn't start with a therapist or haven't talked with a therapist about how do you work with a therapist? What does that even look like? Yeah, uh, A lot of young adults are pretty leery about just going and pouring their heart out to a stranger and then paying that stranger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that can be an awkward situation. <laughs> even worse if your parent tells you you need to go do it. Yeah. yeah. And so trying to explain, take some of the guesswork out of it can be helpful. So talking about 
what are you going to ask your therapist? Um, what, what are you trying to get out of that? Um, I like telling patients that the goal is to, to going into therapy. You want to go in with goals and leave with homework. Kevin Terrio talked about that a little bit, but having a real set plan here. This isn't a hangout session. This isn't, yeah, a, totally. uh, you're not looking for a new best friend. Yeah. This is someone who can help you gain skills. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, that relationship doesn't build over a couple sessions, then maybe that's not the right relationship. That doesn't mean therapy doesn't work for you. I hear that all the time. Therapy doesn't work for me. I tried it. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. That usually means the person I started with wasn't a good match. Yeah. So, you've got to go in with a little open mind and Mm. that's hard to do sometimes, especially if you're not looking for that kind of help. Yeah. My doctor told me I had to go meet with a therapist, but if you have some goals, um, what is the, um, you know, how can I work with my school or my work? Maybe that's where my problems are showing up. Uh, how can I practice the skills that we talk about that I'll need to do in non-stressful situations so that I can use them in stressful situations? Mm -hmm. Um, talking about the real nuts and bolts with a therapist about how you want to get there and how you're going to get there is super helpful. And usually it takes a few visits to break the ice and to get to that point where you're really digging into the meat. And so you got to have a little patience with it. You start out generally recommending therapy first and they'll come back to you after a few months. And if they haven't seen progress, then that's maybe when you start to look into medication as a yeah. Potential solution. I like to explain that that's my role. My role is medication management. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Medical doctor. Um, while, and it's also to try to align resources to those needs. Mm. So if, if all I'm doing is lining up some resources, uh, you know, meeting with a therapist or uh, getting some help with different things, counselors or whatnot, or helping navigate through the school system, then great. My job's done. Um, but if there's a role for medication, Typically, it starts with primary care. Psychiatrists specialize in medication, mm-hmm. and we, we use them all the time, especially when you get into comorbidities, more than one diagnosis, uh, or complicated. You know, I've tried kind of the first line, a couple things, and they're not working. Uh, kids that are on multiple medications. Psychiatry can be super helpful for that. There's just not enough psychiatrists in this world to manage every entry-level uh, medication management. So yeah. a lot of primary care doctors become very skilled in kind of the first two or three steps of managing mental health through medication. I love your approach though, like the idea of going to therapy and testing that a little bit, because as I look back at my journey and my repentance, there's problems that I didn't know I had. Like I just, I was just ignorant to, to so many to things. Find that is the yeah. Problem. And then you find them yeah. and you're like, Oh my gosh, this has been here this whole time. How did I not realize? Like, <laughs> Yeah, so I I just think that's really, really cool. Because sometimes I think we, people might think when they're treating a symptom, they are treating their problem. Yeah, when, I feel better. Let's move on. Yeah, when actually like there's a lot more that they just yeah. don't even Summer know Summer break is one of those ways of treating. You know, if school's really hard for you socially or academically, uh, sometimes everything is better in the summer. Mm-hmm. I don't need help. I don't need medication. I don't need therapy. I don't need anything mm-hmm. till September 1st, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so we see this cycle every year and sometimes it takes a few years of just maturity for individuals to recognize that this is a longer term thing I need to really put some mm. effort into. Mm-hmm. Um, this might be kind of a weird question. <laughs> it's, I mean, hearing your approach and just how much you try to listen, like 
this isn't directed necessarily at you, but like our, we were just curious, are doctors incentivized to prescribe medication? Like does a doctor make more money if they prescribe? Cause I, and I think the only reason why we asked that is just because is there a potential that somebody could go to a doctor and maybe like the first thing they do is prescribe medication and maybe that isn't the best thing? There is a potential. I think it's not the common thing that happens. Yes, I, I bill you every time I see you. That's kind of the backwards way our healthcare system is right now. The more I see you, the more I do, the more money I bill for services. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of smarter people than myself working on healthcare problems and trying to refocus the incentive of not getting you into my office, but keeping you out of my office. Mm-hmm. The idea of I'm keeping you healthy, whatever that takes. Yeah. yeah. And if that means uh, a couple extra phone calls, then we all are in a better place. Hmm. I get paid to keep you healthy, not in the hospital, yeah. not in my clinic. But <laughs> yeah. as the system is, yeah. If right. I put you on a med and say, uh, you got to see you every three months uh, while you're on this medicine, yeah, theoretically, I can make money off of that. Most of us in primary care right now are busy enough that that's not a money maker for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, an ear infection or strep throat is a pretty quick come in, here's your medicine, your problem solved, I build you, we're out. (laughs) Uh, Mental health is a lot thicker, more complicated, more charting, and there's not necessarily a logarithmic scale of being able to charge more for that. Hmm. So uh, my personal approach is to have a balance. I don't not see any one condition, but I also don't want to be the... ADHD specialist. Yeah. I want to be really good at it, but I don't want to see 25 ADHD patients every day. I want to see a variety of things. And maybe that's what gravitated myself to primary care, mm-hmm. having that mix of a little of everything. So a good day for me is doing some mental health, but doing a lot of other things too. Mm-hmm. So I am not personally incentivized to get you on a med so I can see you back. There's enough of that in this world that I don't need to incentivize that. And I think most primary care doctors are very much in line with that is I want to treat my patient. um, You know, those who really love medication management and psychiatry are called psychiatrists and Mm. they're awesome. And you gravitate to that in medical school, usually early on. And there's definitely a role for that. It's just not the primary care role. That was really cool to hear because like it does sound like people are really busy and they're like, motivated to help the people they're with we like to think of ourselves that way (laughs) which is so good (laughs) we would love to kind of wrap up the interview just turning it over to you and just asking you know if there's anything that we haven't asked that maybe we should have asked as it relates to biological factors well i I think the one thing i'd add just is you can't ignore the role that trauma, abuse, neglect play. Yeah. And I think culturally for a long time, that kind of stuff was kind of swept under the rug and we just moved on. We pulled our bootstraps up and and we moved on with life and we didn't talk about that. And fortunately there's been a lot of emphasis on really trying to help with that. You know, there's studies where uh, I talked about the amygdala, that little thing in your brain. Um, There's, there's studies where they, you know, looked on, at the size of the amygdala and kids who were adopted from orphanages that uh, you know, institutionalized in orphanages without a lot of social interaction, a lot of uh, neglect mm-hmm. compared to kids in healthy families. 
and they're different sizes. It, it changed the physical size of this part of your brain. That's crazy. Um, you know, the epigenetics of what that environment did under those stressful conditions. And so while that's fascinating, it, it just highlights the point that we have to consider all those things. And I think a lot of people end up getting to therapy and realizing a lot of the stress and, and problems that they're experiencing and symptoms really underlying some abuse or neglect or other things. And that's not to find someone to blame it on. I think sometimes we worry about uh, putting too much emphasis on those things because then we're just going to blame all our problems on <laughs> my abusive dad or whatever it was. Right. But the reality is uh, we just have to take that into consideration. And a good therapist can help you navigate, what do I do with my life experience? What do yeah. I do with these experiences that maybe were really hard and maybe changed my epigenetics? And and I've gone down a road that um, out of... Uh, you know, a fight or flight response that I didn't want to be down. And now mm. I've created all these other problems. Yeah. So that's the, the really the role that, you know, primary care, we try to screen for those things, but really we're just trying to get people to the, the resources that they need. Mm-hmm. A busy primary care practice, unfortunately, just doesn't have the time to get into all the nitty gritty details. And that's where therapists can be really helpful in building that relationship and, and, and helping you work through whatever those triggers might be or what you're currently dealing with. Mm. And I think, it's important to note too, and we'll probably talk about this later in other episodes, but that trauma, you can have trauma even if like you weren't physically or sexually abused or like even it may not seem very apparent. Yeah. And I just think, yeah, so I think people might have. Yeah. Well, into a sense, we've all experienced bad things. We all do. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so you, you have to put that in the right context mm-hmm. of we're not all searching for that thing in the past that explains why I'm the way I am. Yeah. But you don't want to ignore it either. Mm-hmm. And that can be important. And unfortunately, this world's full of a lot of abuse and neglect and trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all know incredible examples of those who went through hard things and came out better people for it. Uh, we all know people who are still blaming all their problems on someone else who took advantage of them. And, you know, I, I like to think about well, where do you want to be? Where do you mm-hmm. want to end up? And I think that's a really healthy way to approach all those hard issues. I think it's really interesting how interrelated repentance and healing are, how Christ, because he's experienced exactly what we have, can help us work through past experiences and like work through all of this. Like he knows, he knows perfectly what we've gone through and that like it's how he changes, like how he helps us change. It's so good. So, and just as importantly, the adversary doesn't have biology. Mm. So (laughs) he doesn't get it. (laughs) And so, you know, when you're turning to worldly things, to try to fix these problems and you're not including the spiritual aspect of the God who made you, you can see where you run into a dead end really quick. Mm-hmm. These, all these uh, things that are tempting you are coming from someone who doesn't get you mm-hmm. <laughs> by definition. Like, yeah, he can't. So great. Did, did you have anything else you wanted to add? We'd love to just hear your testimony on, um, or advice i guess to anybody who maybe is either helping somebody through the repentance process or going through it themselves i i definitely uh speak from my own experiences we all speak from our own experiences and personally i have found that by living the commandments by following my savior's example i have been blessed i am a happier person 
because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm a better person because of what Christ has taught me. And while some of those lessons have been hard, and some of those lessons have not been the way I wanted to be taught, I'm better for it, and I'm thankful for it. And I can think of no better way to treat the human body and the human soul than in a balanced way. And so if, if you're trying to help someone through hard things, don't shy away from using the resources that are out there. There are so many resources in, in our state and, and all over the place uh, where good, smart people have thought through how to really dig through these things. And if we're working in silos, we're going to really have to reinvent everything, and we don't need to. Um, we, we have professionals for a reason. Uh, we have inspired leaders who are called uh, and have that mantle the Holy Ghost that can help steer them. Um, but we also have great resources uh, for specific diagnoses that come up, so we shouldn't ignore that. At the same time, there is no greater healer than Jesus Christ. And so if we're talking about being healed, we're including the great healer. Uh, I look up to, you know, as a doctor, I, I, I just marvel at, you know, you read the Bible stories about Christ healing, and I can't help but think of what was the physiology going on. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like the, the pool of Bethesda, right? 38 years, he hadn't walked, he just stood up and walked. Like, what happens to your muscles after not walking for 38 years? Yeah. Stuff like that uh, is fascinating. But it just shows that we need to follow our Savior because he, he knows a lot more than us. And the minute we start thinking we're pretty smart and we figure things out is probably the time that we're, we took the wrong turn. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, the, the gospel has the answers, but we can use all the resources at our fingertips to, to get ourselves where we need to. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We are sinners who empathize with the struggle to change, and we want to engage with our listeners. If you have questions, thoughts, feedback, or insights, please fill out the contact form at therepentancepodcast.com or email us directly at hello at therepentancepodcast.com. Please remember that we do not represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor are we authorities on these topics. Rather, we are opening a discussion where unique perspectives and insights can be shared. Thank you.